Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco and drink. I'm Steve Ryder, and due to this whole COVID quarantine stuff, I've not been able to get to record. And it's really kind of set me back, and I've watched my shows in the can dwindle down to just one left in the can for May when the guests releases their books, so... I was on a Holy Smoke virtual smoke with our current guest, Rob Smith, up in the Seattle area. And once I found out Rob wasn't going to be traveling here to Colorado Springs as much, I was like, all right, let's definitely get Rob on and let's talk to him. So, Rob, welcome to the Holy Smokes podcast. Thanks, Steve. Good to be with you. All right. First question I open every show with, what you smoking? Well, I'm smoking a relatively inexpensive Bella Cuba. And I buy them. I buy lots of them. I smoke every day. So this is one of the ones that I'll grab when I'm about to drive home. And this happened to have it in my office and knew that we were going to talk. So I lit one up. Nice. In your office? In my office. I've got an exhaust system in my office. And we do our holy smokes here if it's raining. Otherwise, we do it outside around a bonfire in my uh, the yard of my office, which overlooks the sound. So it's beautiful. Well, anyone that is a part of the secret Facebook group, they may have seen those pictures. It looks like a holy smoke that I definitely want to get up there and get a whole bunch of interviews there in the Seattle area and hang out with you. Yeah, we've been doing this since 2005, actually, back in the Mars Hill days. That's when it started. And at one point, we got up to 60 or 70 men, particularly as this Mars Hill started creaking and men were looking for a different kind of connection. And so uh, it's been a long tradition here. And so it was a natural fit with Holy Smokes when Kay invited me in back in the early days. I think I was one of the first 20 guys in. Nice. <clears throat> so... Anyone that hears your voice can hear a slight bit of an accent. Where are you from originally? <laughs> well, I'm an accent without a country now after 43 years of having left South Africa. I grew up in Zambia and South Africa. And at the age of 18, met my future bride and then discovered in that journey that her family were planning to immigrate to the United States. So I thought I'd better immigrate too if I wanted to hang on to this gal. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so I uh, applied to university here in the U.S. and actually came before she did. And within literally weeks of her landing, five months later, I married her and then uh, went from a student visa, of course, to a permanent resident and um, never looked back. Love this country. Nice. And where'd you go to school? Went to school at Beulah Heights Bible College, which is in Atlanta. They gave me a scholarship. And to be quite honest, I was just trying to get here. And so I took advantage of it and enjoyed a year there and then transferred to Southern Institute of Technology in Marietta, Georgia, which at the time was a was a satellite of Georgia Tech. It's since become independent. So I'm a yellow jacket. Nice. Uh, yeah. So what kind of family did you grow up in? I grew up with my dad for my first early years was a Nazarene pastor and then became a Baptist pastor. And I got saved during the Baptist era of that journey and then really understood my faith after reading a book by Ian Murray called The Forgotten Spurgeon. Mm. And I know the question of who I would like to smoke with will come up and certainly those two men would be amongst the three man, I'd love to smoke a cigar with. So to describe the book, how did that impact you? Well, growing up in what I would say is fundamental evangelicalism, I grew up where the rules were more important than anything else, at least from my perception. You know, it seemed like anything that was fun I could not do. And yet I didn't understand the rules. You know, don't drink, don't smoke, don't have long hair, don't, you know, and the sort of sect of the social setting of the Nazarene church that my parents grew up in, you didn't wear jewelry, you didn't wear makeup, you, you know, and yet you celebrated Halloween and other things that, you know, another set of fundamentalists would all frown on. And so it became very confusing. And then, of course, in the Nazarene church, you also could lose your salvation. 
And so, you know, I got saved at least 87 times because I had a tender conscience and no one would ever explain to me what I actually had to do to lose my salvation. So I was sure that I had lost it. And so the theological sort of understanding of the gospel was just totally obscured by the rules that kept you saved. And so I had this insipid gospel that couldn't save you permanently because once you got saved, it was up to you to sort of keep your salvation. Mm. And that really caused me confusion in my own understanding of the gospel. And the forgotten Spurgeon was really reminding Baptists that Spurgeon was somewhat of a Calvinist. And it didn't make me a Calvinist as much as it grounded me in my faith. It gave me an understanding of justification by faith and the whole concept of imputed righteousness as opposed to imparted righteousness that, you know, upon my profession of faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, his righteousness becomes mine, and that's why I'm acceptable to God. You know, I'm clothed in his righteousness. And so when I come into his presence in prayer or in my relationship, he doesn't see me with my staggering journey. He sees me perfect in Christ, and so I'm acceptable to him. And that was radical for me. That Mm. stabilized my faith. How old were you when you read the book? I was 16. Wow. Yeah. But I'd already graduated from high school. I was actually read it. It was one of my first jobs. It was a phenomenal job. And if you understand the British class system that I grew up with, it's quite hilarious. I couldn't get a job anywhere because I had not done my army training and no one would hire you in a full-time job back in those days because if they hired you and then you went to army, they had to keep paying you. So no one would hire you until you'd done your army training. The only group that would hire me was the South African Railways. And in the British class system, that was considered beneath my class to take a job at such a low level. And yet they're the only ones offering me a job. So I became a stoker on the South African railways, which literally meant that I kept the fire going in steam engines, which for a 16 year old was an amazing job. You know, it was fantastic. I loved it. Steam and, uh, en- it's, you're not that old to have been around steam engines. Well, bear in mind that South Africa was always, you know, a decade behind the rest of the world in culture and in development and so so i was actually on the steam engines the last year that south africa ran steam engines routinely wow i I used to go up and down the coastline of south africa which is a beautiful beach line every single day up and down on the same route and it was phenomenal and so we would do what was called shunting so we go into a station and then rearrange all their freight goods trailers get them in the right order so that a long haul steam engines could come and get them and then take them up to Johannesburg or wherever they were going. And so we would do a lot of work and then stop for an hour or two and do nothing while we waited to go to the next station. And it was during those time periods that I would read a lot. And someone had given me the Forgotten Spurgeon. And that's where I read the Forgotten Spurgeon. So I almost feel like that's when I met the Lord in, in so many ways. Wow. Uh, you know, on a steam engine, probably somewhere in the south coast of South Africa, watching the waves so- break. How old were you when you came to the U.S. then? I was 19. 19? Yeah. I married my bride on my 20th birthday. She was 19. (laughs) And I I wouldn't do it any other way. Literally, I had $60 to my name. But my Greek professor at uh, Bible College had me do a job for him. I dug a trench for him, 400-foot trench in the mountains of North Georgia. had no idea what I was volunteering to do. But at the time, I didn't have a work permit. And he owed me $400. And so after I said my ideas and I was walking my bride down the aisle at this little Bible college where I've coerced everyone to come to my wedding so I would have a congregation, he slipped $400 into my pocket. So before I got married and as I was getting married, I had $60 to my name. But by the time I got my bride out the door, I had $460 to my name. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't remember if you said it. What did you study in school? I studied engineering, but at Beulah Heights Bible College, I studied, you know, it was traditional Bible courses, you know, yeah, Old Testament survey and English and uh, some math, and but it was mainly biblical subjects, theology. So what did you do after school? Uh, civil engineering and architecture. Okay. And did you guys stay in Georgia? Did you? Yeah, we stayed in Georgia for 22 years. We went back to South Africa for two of those years just to get our kid, have our kids all meet their cousins in South Africa and their aunts and uncles. And they came back to Georgia. And then in 1998, we took a family vacation to the West Coast. 
and a couple of our family, our extended family members had moved and lived in Seattle. And so we flew to San Francisco and drove up the Highway 101 to Seattle and drove back. It rained half the time, but the other half was so beautiful that when we got to Atlanta, we determined that we would love to move to the West Coast for a period of our life. And so in the following year, we I bought a company here in Seattle and we moved. So you mentioned kids. How many kids? We've got four adult children. We have 11 grandchildren. Three of them are adopted. And our kids all are doing well. They love Christ. They're scattered around the country. And we're very proud of them. So civil engineering, architecture, what kind of jobs, what kind of businesses? Yeah, so my, my business has always been related to construction or putting things together. Although I'm a serial entrepreneur, so I've also had other businesses over the years. I uh, did publishing for a while and uh, did computer software for a while. But my primary career has been building uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, great Atlanta, Georgia houses. So I built 70, 80 houses and a couple of restaurants and a church. But just burned out doing that eventually and bought a company here in Everett that was a manufacturing company. It wasn't a good buy. I got rid of it fairly quickly and then went from that to building boats, something I'd always wanted to do. And so I became a boat builder, having never built a boat in my life. And that's an interesting story that has a lot to do with my relationship, my ministry relationship to Africa, why I started building boats. We'll get into that when you ask me about it. But, uh, <laughs> but I, came so bought, I came and bought a furniture company, and it was just a bad time to get into furniture. Yeah. And so I sold it, and then um, for a couple of years, served Africa sort of as a missionary in a way, but just never was, was a square peg in a round hole. And then in that journey, formed Thane Boatworks in 2005. And that's where I'm sitting now. As you can see, I've got a, one of our ferries on Lake Victoria behind me next to Ronald Reagan, who's one of my favorite presidents. <laughs> so where'd that love for boats come from? I'd always been fascinated by boats. I didn't grow up with boats. I grew up on a surfboard. I was a surfer my entire teenage life. Really? Yeah. And I um, can't imagine you surfer. <laughs> I mean, just to, like the hair and all that. I... Yeah. Well, when I was in Africa, I lived you know just a mile from the Indian Ocean. Some of the best surfing in the world. All yeah. of my friends were surfers. My hair was bleached blonde by the sun. My nose was always peeling. And so. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I had a rack on my bicycle. As soon as I turned 16, I bought a motorcycle, put a rack on my motorcycle. Yeah. And, uh, enjoyed surfing a lot. But then married a girl that moved to Atlanta, Georgia. So I grew up thinking I could never be in a town that didn't have the ocean and then moved to Atlanta for 22 years. And we enjoyed Atlanta a lot. But um, always just had this hankering to build a boat. And yet the reason I started building boats was because when we moved to Seattle, we bought a boat right away. Because, you know, in Seattle and boating, you know, one of the most amazing cities in the world on a boat, especially in the summertime. It's phenomenally beautiful. Yeah. There's 700 islands in the Puget Sound. You know, it's just a boater's mecca. So I bought a boat, an old wooden boat, and we restored it. And we entered it into the local Center for Wooden Boats annual festival, and we won best boat for our restoration because I've always loved woodworking. Yeah. And so it um, got me into boats here. And so I always wanted to build myself a classic wooden boat, but I never had the time to. And then in this journey of becoming a missionary, we felt after I sold my business here, we sort of wanted what the Lord had brought us to Seattle for, seeing that I bought a business that I realized I shouldn't have bought, and I sold it for less than I bought it for, but I got out of it once I realized it wasn't going to work for me. Mm -hmm. And for two years, we formed Agathos International, which is a ministry at that time for orphans that were being orphaned by the AIDS crisis. And two years into it, I realized I still didn't need to continue to be an entrepreneur and feed myself that way. And there's a story behind that. And I thought, well, I can't build houses again because I'm traveling to Africa too often uh, related to ministry. And so I just decided, why not start building boats and just fulfill a lifelong dream? And so that's when I formed the uh, Lane Boat Works. So you said there's a story behind that desire to continue to be an entrepreneur, what was going on? Well, one of my other guys on my board, a fellow called Stu Epperson, who's the son of Stu Epperson from Salem Communications. Yep. Just a wonderful Christian man and a good friend of mine. 
Yeah. He was on my board and he, I was in North Carolina and he said, Hey, I've set up an interview with a guy. His name is called Jim Farrell. And I went to go and see Jim and Jim was a successful man. And when I walked into his office, he had a large office about the south of my boardroom here. And it was just lined with pictures of kids and clearly, you know, kids from Africa and India. And he clearly had a heart for orphans. And so in my fleshly thinking, I thought this is fantastic. I've been introduced by a extremely well-known man, credible man. He's introduced me to another credible man. I'm going to walk out here getting support, you know, and that's what I was looking for, support. And I hated asking people to support Agathos, which is crazy because it was at a fantastic ministry, but I just felt like I'm asking them to support me. What year was this going on? This was 2005. Okay. And so I spoke to Jim and Jim, you know, heard my little spiel and he said, Rob, he said, let me ask you a question. He said, what do you earn out of Agathos? And no one had asked me that. A lot of people had asked me for numbers and percentages and that sort of thing. But no one asked me, what do I take home? You know? Yeah. And so I said to him, I sort of, yeah, a little miffed because it's kind of an unusual question. And so I said to him, I said, I earn about a third of what I need to support a family in Seattle. The rest I just take out of my own resources. He says, well, come back and talk to me when you're not earning anything. And Jim has, every time he sees me, he apologizes for saying that. He says he's never done that to anyone else and he's embarrassed. But it was really a moment that the Lord, it was the Lord speaking to me because I'm, I was a serial entrepreneur and I was in this missionary sort of mode of trying to create a 501c3 and live off it while I ministered. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it was not right for me. Yeah. And so I was actually in a rental car and I did something I never do in a rental car. I was in Raleigh, North Carolina. It took two and a half hours to drive back to Charlotte and I smoked a cigar in that rental car. I wasn't supposed to, but I was riled up in a way in my spirit and I had a cigar and me and the Lord wrangled with each other. And when I got to Charlotte, I decided I was not going to take another cent out of Agathos. And I haven't wow. done that since then. And wow. I called my, I called the guy that was running Agathos with me and I said, I don't want to be paid out of Agathos. I'm going to start a company again and do what God's wired me to do, which is to be an entrepreneur. And what was fascinating, Steve, is that we then formed, and then I've designed Thane Boatworks on the flight, five-hour flight back to Seattle. When I landed, I said, we're going to build boats. And the reason was because I thought building boats is similar to building houses, except I don't have to go through all the permitting process and the mitigation process and the, the investment buying the land. You know, I'm building a house on a hull rather than on land. And so a little naive. I've learned a lot since then, but that was really the basis of which we started building. I've always wanted to do it. I thought it was similar skills and similar trades. And so that's got me into boat building. I think that's something fascinating that you just said, that you're not wired to be a 501c3 president, but you are wired to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. And Agathos has still continued. And we went through some amazing years with Agathos. You know, we're literally, you know, it was seven figures and the high seven figures when we added all our goods in kind because we became distributors for World Concern and World Vision, distributing goods in kind, medicine and yeah. other other things. And so, you know, Agathos has continued, but I, it's, I'm far more comfortable asking someone to give to Agathos knowing I'm not living off it, which is crazy. You know, it's just the way that I'm wired. I felt like totally. I was be- begging to feed me when I was asking people to support it and there's nothing wrong with that, but it just wasn't me. Yeah. But I don't mind asking someone to invest in my company. And so that's really where my sweet spot was, which is why we've got ferries on Lake Victoria now, because I'm an entrepreneur and I'm a guy that builds business much. And I feel more comfortable there than asking people to give to a ministry that I also then get a salary off of. And that's just for me. I have no judgment for anyone that does that. And many of my friends do that and I support them. Yeah. So that was just yeah. me. But what was fascinating and what I really enjoyed and I leaned into heavily once I realized it is when I went back to Africa, during the time that I was sort of in this missionary mode in Africa, they called me Pastor Rob. They stopped calling me Pastor Rob when I went as a business guy and it changed my entire influence. Really? It was really quite amazing. I had a different level of influence as a businessman, as a Christian businessman in Africa than I did as a pastor in Africa. What was the difference? I think there's a different level of respect, a different willingness to listen, because they assumed wealth, even though I've never been a wealthy man, by, you know, in terms of how we measure wealth. Yeah, I view myself as a wealthy man uh, for other reasons, but um, yeah. it was just a totally different feel. And then with government officials and in trying to influence culture, it was just a totally different influence. People are 
far more willing to listen to me on certain areas of culture. So in terms of business and sports and why the gospel relates to everything in addition to your salvation. You know, and it's really helped me to become a more effective African missionary being a mm. businessman than I was just being a pastor. It was really quite now, an amazing contrast. Now, Agatha is the name of it? Agathos. That's a Greek word Agathos. Yeah. Nice. Agathos. Like so if that. someone looks up agathosinternational.org, they'll find my organization. And we continue to minister in Africa, and then we also do local ministry here in Seattle. So what sorts of ministry are you doing in Africa and Seattle? In Seattle, we've been calling the business guys to get involved with the vulnerable. And so what we've been doing up until recently is three times a year, we'll have a black tie event where we invite people to come and learn from business guys that are doing something intentional to help the vulnerable in either their community or in someone else's community. And that's where yeah. we've introduced a lot of Seattleites to Save the Storks. For many years, I was involved with Save the Storks. I'm no longer on their board, but I was on their board, and I would invite Save the Storks, for example, to come and share with this black tie event that we had. They're 10 minutes. We always have two speakers. One speaker is a business guy, and the other one someone that has a ministry involving the vulnerable. And so we would have a business guy like John Coors, for example, from your neck of the woods, from uh, Golden, Colorado, from the Coors family. Yeah. Has spoken. We'll have you know well-known business guys from my network. George Gilder came. Mm. We've had guys from Scott Moore, is a local guy from Colorado Springs. The business guy that has got two or three businesses. He's come and spoke. Uh, Al Mueller has come and spoken to us, also from Colorado Springs. So we'll I'll tap into my national network of friends and have them come and speak as business people, and then I'll tap into my missionary guys who are specifically helping the poor or helping vulnerable women. And then we have two 10-minute runs, and then the rest is just a fun evening where you collaborate and you decide, you know, it's not a fundraiser, but we allow them to, you know, to network and say, okay, you've heard this now, talk and do things. And that's really mm -hmm. what the essence to me of Holy Smokes is. It's just a bunch of guys getting together, but we are better off, and so we're able to do things together that we wouldn't be able to do if it was just a bunch of beer buddies that don't have any resources. But when Holy Smokes, we're all, you know, well off enough to – smoke ten dollars if you know a couple of times a day and so it's just a different subset of god's humanity yeah. that meet around a fire and we are able to do things if we love christ and we love people you know and so that's the magic to me of sitting down with guys that are successful around a fire and saying you know what are you doing in your life and how can i help you that's wonderful so you mentioned save the storks talk a little bit about them how did you get involved how'd you get on the board that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's an interesting story. I got involved really protecting them. I was in a group called Council for National Policy, which is a, a sort of a select group of national conservative leaders, political, social, business, economic, and I've been a member for 20 years. And so I met Save the Storks there, but someone I think had just in the pro-life world was a little jealous. And so I heard some really not so good things about them. And so that made me curious. So the more I inquired, the more I felt out of place that kind of criticism was with a pro-life group. And so I took a very public stand in the forum saying that we're not going to knock it off. We need to support each other, not criticize each other. And so in that way, it became, you know, the leaders were very appreciative of that. And so we became friends and then eventually I got invited onto the board. So the whole relationship so, started out really in a protective way. I didn't nice. like what, what was being said about them. So yeah, what does Save the Storks do for people that aren't familiar with that ministry? Yeah, Save the Storks started out by offering really excellent mobile medical clinics that would park outside of Planned Parenthood or park on a university campus and offer women that were considering an abortion the opportunity to, to come and get an ultrasound and hear the heartbeat of their child. Just a pro-life ministry, very non-confrontational, very loving of, of the women in crisis. And it's grown from there to supporting pregnancy resource centers and then also supporting women at that moment of crisis. So it's, it's really centered around love, compassion, and action. And it's an amazing group, and I was really pleased to have been part of the journey. Fantastic. So and they're, they're Kay, based in Colorado Springs, where you guys are. Yeah. So Kay wanted me to have you talk about a school that you started in Atlanta. 
Yeah, so I'm a serial entrepreneur, and you know, my blessing and my cursing, I guess, is that when everyone says let's do something, I'm usually the one that sort of says, okay, here's the plan, let's do it. <laughs> you know, and I roar ahead and hope that people follow me. And so when my wife got pregnant, I was 22. She was 21. And it was right in the sort of beginning of the Christian school movement in this country back in the 70s. And I went to our pastor and I said to him, you know, we've got a child in the in the oven, but we don't have a Christian school. Where's my kid going to go to school in five years' time? And so he said, well, that's a good question. Why don't you start a school? And so I was 22. I put the committee together. Everyone was twice my age. And I interviewed 21 local Christian schools in the state of Georgia, one in Chattanooga, and came back to a congregational church and, based on my own research, proposed that we start a Christian school and that we do not charge school fees. We publish the cost and we ask parents that can afford it to pay their fair share. And if someone could not afford it, we would not turn them away, but we would raise the money to support them. Wow. And so I convinced a congregational church to go with that riskier model. And the reason that I made that argument to them was that all 21 had fiscal struggles. The one that was most fiscally sound was the one that did not charge school fees. And so I just based it on my own research. And for five years, so I ran that school for five years on the side. It wasn't something I did full time. I just yeah. set up the whole structure. And we were in the black every year for five years even though it was always a little gut-wrenching because we relied on a certain percentage of contributions to come in. And we just published what it cost to educate a child, and most of the parents were well enough enough to pay that, but many paid more because they knew that there were some parents that could not afford it. And then after five years, more students were attending from outside of the church then, from within the church, and so I made the proposal to the church that we handed over then to the parents and let the parents run the school going forward and that I would give them guidance until I was not necessary anymore. Yeah. Um, and then we moved out of the community. So my child never went to the school that I started, but it, it changed its name from Grace Christian Schools to North Cobb Christian Schools. And it's now a school of about 1,300 students, one of the premier <sighs> schools in Metro Atlanta. And they probably have no idea who I am, which is fine. <laughs> <laughs> Now, early on in this conversation, you talked about Mars Hill and its unraveling being around that. And so this is the one story that Kay, Steve Grison, and a couple other guys kind of said, Rob was very instrumental in everything that happened at Mars Hill with Mark Driscoll and all that. And so I was like, oh, oh. I mean, for me, during my time of being working so close to Dobson, I've always just been fascinated with other Christian leaders and gotten to know them. And I've watched that story unfold from obviously outside of that, outside of what was going on. So how did you get involved with Mars Hill? And Yeah, so our Mars Hill story is a story of great joy and great pain. And people who went there either really like me or they really don't like me. Mm. Um, and it's a small, small subset that don't like me because of the way that it ended. But for a time period, it was a much greater number. My own journey began with me being called by a friend who knew that I was a um, sort of a loosely reformed Baptist guy that didn't criticize the Pentecostals the way that most reformed Baptist guys do, just because my own hermeneutic and understanding of the scriptures didn't teach me that the gifts of the Spirit had ceased. And so I was very sympathetic towards Pentecostal church. My wife's family came from the Pentecostal background, and we'd been members of a Pentecostal church, even though I'd never got into the some of the gifts that they insisted yeah. I need to get into. So I clearly understand my own theology, but I want to be around people that love Christ and love people first, and, True. and that have a theological backbone second. Yeah, Because to me, the fruit of the gospel is that you love Christ and you love people, not that you love your theology. And so um, we were often misfits in, in a lot of the sort of Reformed churches we went to because they were sort of theological, uh, theologically astute, but often didn't care for people. In fact, often they'd be very hard on people. So yeah, and sort of trying to find a church here in Seattle, someone called me up and said, you know, we think you might enjoy Marshall Church. And so we went there, and to be honest with you, the preaching was phenomenal, but we had to get used to the music and all the countercultural stuff. 
And what was just very overt was the love for people and the love for the gospel that came from not only Mark Driscoll, but the church as a whole. When we started going, there's about 600 people that went, and it grew rapidly. I was very involved in it. We loved it. And Agathos was formed while we were there. So during the years that we were there, the only ministry that Morris Hill supported, and they didn't support it with money, but they supported it with giving me a platform and allowing me to pitch, was Agathos. So we had an amazing journey at Morris Hill. We loved Morris Hill Church. It gave us a love for the city of Seattle because we came as conservatives from Atlanta to Seattle. And at first it was a culture shock. And yet we eventually saw ourselves as missionaries here. And so we had an amazing journey with Mark Driscoll and with Mars Hill Church. And we were members for five years, and it grew from 600 to over 3,500 in those five years. And Mm. I never got into the leadership team because I was involved in Africa very, very heavily. And then we started playing boats. And they had a way of the way that you became an elder was that you sort of volunteered to be an elder. And I always felt like that was not my model. If someone wants me to be an elder, they've got to come and ask me because they trust my life enough to want to follow me. You know, I feel like anyone that says, here am I, I qualify being an elder is not being very honest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When, they yeah. the, when they look at the standard yeah. to be an elder, we've, you know, the first one that can disqualify oneself is oneself. Yeah. And so I never ever threw my hat in the ring. But then after five years, they were starting to do multi-campus, and one of the young men that was a really good friend of mine had become an elder, came and, and really asked me if I would consider being a campus elder with him. And so I finally threw my head in the ring. And what's interesting, they had this rigorous process, and it's really interesting looking back and learned a lot from it, but they had this rigorous process that actually kind of qualified you in terms of going through all the hoops, but it didn't test your character. And the week before I was to be inducted into becoming an elder, I started hearing rumblings about the bylaws changing at Morris Hill Church. And I knew enough people to sort of find out what was going on. And I got a copy of the bylaws. I was exposed to a copy of the proposed bylaws, and they turned the entire church governance upside down. They made it top-heavy rather than elder-heavy. And so you had basically, were to pass, Mark Driscoll would have the ability to hire and fire as elders rather than the other way around. Mm-hmm. And so I went to a couple of my friends that were elders and I said, you know, this is not going to be good for the church. And then one elder in particular approached me and he was concerned about the parts of the new bylaws that dealt with church discipline. And being a biblical scholar myself and then seeing not only my family go through a church discipline process from a sort of a reformed church that really hurt everybody, including my family, and then seeing other families hurt by church discipline not done well. I really pressed into studying that from a biblical standpoint and read a lot of mm-hmm. books like Churches That Abused, by example, by Enrath and other books on church discipline. And I became a little bit of a sort of a fundy on it. And so he came and said, what would you do differently? Because he'd proposed sort of a biblical Matthew 18 method. And Mark Driscoll's response was, you can't do that in a mega church. You see, and so they gave sort of individual elders the ability to execute church discipline without going through a Matthew 18 process where you eventually be, bring it before the church. Yeah. You see, and so I actually wrote what this guy proposed, which was, you know, you don't have to have the whole church. You need a representative of the church, like a jury system. You see, and so I, so I wrote that. And so I became familiar with the proposed changes, and I was not in favor of them, but I didn't have any say in it because I wasn't an elder. But this elder, along with one other senior or elder actually did have some say. And in the journey, Mark Driscoll was afraid that they would have enough sway to stop the bylaws being passed. So he fired them and came up with some ridiculous concocted charges of their sin, you know, which was right again down my alley. It was church discipline. So he actually told the church that they, they'd been fired and that they were going to stand trial to become and then let the elders find them innocent or guilty, enough guilty they would no longer be elders. And so this was a shock to the entire church. And so the night before the trial of the first elder, the church didn't know what the charges were. And we heard that the elder wasn't even going to be at his own trial and that the same people who were going to judge them were also going to prosecute them. And so I wrote an email to What? I wrote an email to the 24 elders. I didn't write to anyone else. I wrote an email to Mark and the 24 elders. And I said, 
you guys have to have a biblical trial, which is a fair trial. Otherwise, you're going to cast a shadow on our church that will never go away. And for doing that, I was put under church discipline. And the charge against me was that I was divisive. And when I challenged Mark and said, that's ridiculous. I'm the most peace-loving guy out there. Then the last thing yeah. I've done is divide. He said, no, you try to divide the elders. You wrote to 24 of them. You try to cause division amongst the elders. You see, so I said, oh, goodness sakes. I mean, this bylaws give the elders equal authority. You're about to have a trial that ultimately will be the demise of the church, which proved to be prophetic. It took seven years. But that email that I wrote to them turned out to be prophetic because the implications of what happened after that trial ultimately brought the church down. And that is that Mark Driscoll, who's an amazingly talented man that we yeah. dearly loved, phenomenal teacher, went from being held accountable to men who could pull him in when he would go too far to not having that accountability. And that, to me, was the demise of, ultimately, the demise of Mark Driscoll's ministry as in Seattle. You know, he's back in the ministry now, and you know, I pray he does well. I pray he's learned a lot. But what made him an abusive pastor was the fact that his elders could no longer call him up and say, you can't do that. And if you're going to do that, we're going to fire you. And so it went from a elder-led church to a Mark Driscoll-led church. And that changed mm. it quite drastically. It changed his preaching, it changed his style, and he became more and more abusive because Mark Driscoll was an insecure man. And if you're an insecure pastor, the guys that threaten you is anyone that becomes popular because they might split off, you know. And so he would not allow any person, any of his elders, or any of the guys that were in his growing team to really do well because he viewed them as a threat. So mm. we left the church at that point and very quietly. And it was painful. My relationship with Mark was very painful. He threatened to destroy me and destroy my ministry and then tried to do that. He would use innuendo, you know, I wouldn't support Rob anymore. Why? Well, I don't want to get into it. You know, just trust me. Uh. I, know Rob. I know Rob better than anyone. So, you know, it was just innuendo and you, there's no way you can even defend yourself against that. So, Mel and I just left quietly and continued to, to do what we do. Mm. However, six years later, you know, from time to time, though, you know, I was part of New Canaan Society, part of other groups, you know, of men. And, you know, I, I'm a leader. And so I'd end up mixing with the leaders. And they would often say, well, next year, let's invite Mark Driscoll to preach. And I would say, well, I wouldn't do that. And they'd say, why? And I'd say just things like, you know, he's a very talented man, but he's got some character issues. And just trust me, I've been in a ministry for many, many years. And I just think there's a side to him that we don't need to learn from. And so I was successful at least, you know, keeping him out of the circles that I had any influence over because I saw him as a man that would be quite willing to hurt somebody. And six years into that journey, after a New Canaan weekend in San Francisco, a local leader here came to me and said, Rob, I'm beginning to understand why you always caution us against Mark Driscoll. And I said, well, wow, what's going on? He said, the level of abuse in this was his words. The level of abuse within the church is shocking. And so I said, well, talk to me about it. And he told me what, how he would, what he would do to men that he would fire and then put gag orders on and threaten them uh, that if they spoke up, that he would uh, sue them and go after them. And he says, it's run like the mafia. So I said, well, why is no one saying anything? He said, Rob, they are literally afraid to say it. They're young men and they're afraid to say anything. So I said, well, I'm not so young. I'll, 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 I'll speak up. You know, he's already hurt me. He can't hurt me anymore. I'll speak up and just, you know, be a, a mouthpiece for it. And so I put together a blog. Mark had said after he fired those two men seven years earlier that there are dead bodies under the Morris Hill bus and there will be more dead bodies, God willing. You're either on the bus or you get off the bus. Uh. And so I started a blog called Musings from Under the Bus and I just started telling people stories. And that began the journey of, of a call to accountability. And my whole point was, Mark, you need to be accountable. You need to revoke the bylaws and be in a position where men can tell you, you cannot do that. You know? And so it was quite a journey, Mark. And uh, it's sad, really. In November of 2013, Mark said, next year will be the best year ever. They had a $20 million budget. And within nine months, that church had collapsed. Mm. He just fought. He would not deal with the reality and the stories that were coming out. And I just became a storyteller, really. Mm. But with a view to calling him to repentance, you know, we didn't want him to leave. We wanted him to stop doing what he was doing, which was harming a lot of people. 
he harmed a lot of people. And so at the end of the day, so it began, at least in Seattle, it sort of appeared to be a little bit of a Rob versus Mark thing, but it really wasn't. It was Mark versus a lot of elders who, you know, the elders then brought charges against him. Other elders spoke up. You know, it just became this wave of people saying, yeah, I also have a story. And mm. um, so, you know, and at the end of the day, you know, we were vindicated because uh, eventually Paul Tripp, who was on his board, said privately, but it became public, that it was the most abusive church he'd ever been a part of. Mm. And that sort of started tipping the scale and eventually... And so the, the background story is that the elders called for him to take a leave of absence and get counseling and sort out his problems. And he chose rather to leave. And he left the agreement package none of us know anything about. But it, he took a name with him. He took all the material with him. It, you know, it really collapsed the church in the end. Mm. But, you know, we hope there's a redemptive story in it because many of those men now run churches here. His footprint, you know, he was a wonderful man in many respects. And so there's a lot of good fruit, you know, amongst the bad fruit. And the Bible yeah. says one man waters, another plants, another reaps. And so, you know, I, I wish him well. I don't have any animosity towards him. And much to the surprise of a lot of people are still mad at him. I'm not mad at him. You know, even though he, he really hurt me. He hurt me and he hurt my ministry and he hurt, you know, I'm still, I still live, walk with a limp in a way because of some mm. of the things that he tried to do to hurt me. But at the end of the day, God's in it, you know. And so we just have to trust the Lord to vindicate one you know we that's can a really, take things into our own hands that's but, a really mature way of looking at things well look we all screw up i remember when mark i had a terrible conversation with mark and that's when we and i decided to leave where he he became the abusive mark i mean he was using language as my pastor that was unbelievable you know i stayed 15 rounds in the ring with him and that was very few people would do that and in that process he says he says i can destroy you he said i know things about you That'll destroy you. And so I said, Mark, I said, you can't destroy me any more than I can destroy myself. Whatever the worst thing you know about me, I probably know something worse. You know? And so that even helps me deal with him, even with all that he did, is that we're all sinners saved by grace. We all screw up. We all run into mm -hmm. those areas of our life that are patterns of sin when we're in distress. You know? And we need the cross. We continually need the cross. And you know, Mark needs the cross just like the rest of us do. And we learn from our mistakes. And so my prayer is, you know, he went to Scottsdale, Arizona, and started a church. And my prayer is that he learned from his mistakes that he'll be a better pastor. You know, he hurt himself by some of what he did. He'll always have to live with that as a shadow. But, you know, he's a talented man. He loves God's word. He loves people. And I pray that he's just a better pastor mm -hmm. there. You know? Early on in the conversation, I heard you say it a number of times, serial entrepreneur, serial entrepreneur, serial entrepreneur. Where did that come from? You know, I think it came from my mother. My mother was an amazing woman, and she started several businesses, and I think I just got it from her. You know, when I was 10 years old, my brother was eight. She used to go to trade shows with this German product that allowed women who used to sew back in those days, sew their own clothing, to create patterns of for their dresses. And so I would go with her with my brother, and... I came across this guy selling stuffed teddy bears and I made a deal with him at 10 to buy them wholesale. And then my brother and I went onto the beaches of Durban during tourist season and we'd sell teddy bears to all the tourists from up country. <laughs> uh, and until, you know, a funny moment, we were shut down, literally shut down by the city authorities because we didn't have a business license. It was hilarious. <laughs> ten, ten years old, my brother was eight. We looked, all, we looked awfully cute, and what tourist wouldn't buy a teddy bear from a, a little blonde 10-year-old running around in a bathing suit with his little eight-year-old brother? So we made leather goods. You know, Then the hippie era came along, so we made leather goods, guru sandals, and big wide belts during my high school era. So I was always up to something like that. And at any given time, I'm sort of thinking, what can I do next? You know? So where is business right now in the midst of this COVID stuff? And really, where are you taking things? Where do you want to take things? Well, I started, you know, when we started in the boat business, we very quickly sort of looked at need where we were ministering to orphans and widows in Africa and realized that the biggest need of those communities was economic life. You know, they were largely gospel-centric. You know, Africa is very evangelical. And, you know, most people who are going to Africa to try and save Africans, well, they're, they're saved. You know, we, were, mm -hmm. we lived in Zambia where 80% of the people are evangelical Christians. It's 
Swaziland even higher than that. And yet they're in poverty. And so what I realized in the shift that happened back in North Carolina with Jim Farrell and his comments and then how God used that to sort of put me back into a business mode was that, you know, my ministry would be to form businesses that bring economic life where we were otherwise ministering to the vulnerable. And so we started, because we were up in Uganda where Lake Victoria is and the whole Rift Valley with all their lakes, we, and now we are in the boat business, we started looking at what we could do there as a business, as ministry opportunity that dovetailed with a means of earning a living in, in the States. And so we decided to start building ferries. And so what's a, that's a really crazy story, Steve, is we built our first boat as a 50-foot trawler, basically, a fantail trawler, beautiful boat. And when we launched it, months after we launched it, the 2008 economic collapse happened. And the first thing that got destroyed in Seattle was all the boat builders. But I had come up with this idea of raising capital, forming a company called Earthwise Ferries, and raise capital from just uh, missional investors to put ferries on Lake Victoria. And so that actually sustained us through a crisis that put most of my competitors out of business here in Seattle. Wow. And no one ever bought that 50-footer. I still have it. It's out. We're busy doing some repairs to it, but I've had that now for 10 years. It's now my personal boat. I named it <laughs> after my mother. Once I named it after my mother, there's no way I was going to sell it. <laughs> and so the second boat we ever built was a 65-foot fast ferry. Having never built a boat before other than this first boat that nobody bought. And we had a really funny moment because we were distributing millions of dollars worth of goods for World Concern. And we had some of their goods in my factory and they came over to talk to me. And they said, we'd like a tour of your factory. And they came in there and there's this huge, beautiful 65-foot ferry in the factory that we eventually cut up and shipped to Africa in containers and then rebuilt it on the shores of Lake Victoria. And while we were strutting around, they said, oh, boy, how long have you been in the boat business and how many boats have you sold? And I had to tell them I've been in the boat business like 18 months and I haven't sold any boats. <laughs> <laughs> so just quite, quite a humbling moment. They sort of realized that we were still a startup. And, um, <laughs> and so you know, we've just grown since then. That's awesome. Well, yeah. Rob Smith, let's get to rapid fire questions. Hey everyone, before we get to the rapid fire segment, I wanted to talk about a way that you as a listener can support the show and the growth of Holy Smokes by becoming a monthly supporter at patreon.com slash holy smokes. Patreon is a support platform and for as little as $5 a month, you can get bonuses like ad-free versions of these podcast episodes, Holy Smoke swag like t-shirts and more. That's patreon.com slash holy smokes. We're looking to get 40 Patreon supporters at an average of $10 a month. And once we hit that, we'll be able to pay for all the costs for hosting, editing, writing, posting. I won't be paying for that out of my pocket or through the volunteering of my own personal time. And as we grow that number to 100 and 150, 200 patrons, we'll be able to do two shows a week, hire a part-time assistant, web developer, record on location and around the world and more. I want to visit groups and get those stories from so many of you listeners that I hear from. I want to go to Seattle, and I want to go to Dallas, and I want to go to Charleston, South Carolina, and I want to go to Kentucky, and Chicago, and Phoenix, Atlanta, D.C., Charlotte, back to Southern California, and more. We want to help grow your groups and plant new ones for those of you in areas without active groups. So can you help us out? become a regular supporter at patreon.com slash holy smokes there's a link in the show notes that's patreon.com slash holy smokes or if you want to make a one-time tax deductible gift go to paypal.me slash holy smokes club that's paypal.me slash holy smokes club and both of those links are in the show notes thanks rapid fire fire here all right Cigars or pipe? Cigars. I started out with the pipe. In fact, when I read Forgotten Spurgeon, one of the things I did was buy a pipe almost to sort of have as an object lesson just to look at the rules that I grew up with and just sort of give those rules the finger. Yeah. And the same when I met I, Merle. I met Merle, my wife, and she came from a teetotaling, you know, very sort of legalistic oriented, wonderful family, but it's wrapped up in rules. And on my first date, I, I was, you know, I was 18. I probably wasn't even legal, but my first date, I, 
ordered a bottle of wine just to get this over with. Just let her understand that we are saved by grace, not by rules. And so I started smoking a pipe. But, you know, smoking a pipe is a lot of work. It just takes work. It's, <laughs> it's too much work. And so when I finally came across cigars, it was, you know, I'm just not, I don't work hard enough to keep a pipe going. And so once I started smoking cigars, I, I, you know, I still smoke a pipe occasionally, but a pipe is just too much work for me. I'm too ADD to smoke a pipe. <laughs> I like that. Giving a middle finger to the rules. Yeah. You're a guy after my own heart. Well, you know, Favorite. I, fun, I speak to a lot of African pastors in audiences, and I have to tell them in the first sermon, could we do a three-day session with them just going through the gospel in Africa and how the gospel can change the African's culture, which it has failed to do. It's changed African individualized, but it doesn't change the culture. And that's a whole different discussion. But in the journey, I have to tell them very quickly that I smoke a cigar and that I drink their beer because they're going to find out sooner or later, and it's going to shock them. So I just... I've learned how to, in my first sermon, weave in the gospel and the, the whole principle of reaching out to the poor and the needy in their community using the verse, uh, we strain at gnats, but we swallow camels. And uh, their reaction to the reality that I smoke cigars and drink whiskey is part of taking them through the journey of them straining at a gnat while they ignore the poor in their own community. You know, mm. So I've become very good at taking an audience through this shocking reality that the guy preaching from them smokes cigars because in Africa they were brought a legalistic gospel by well-meaning missionaries and it's very significant to them that you don't drink and you don't smoke. So I have to very carefully guide them through the reality that this man who loves Jesus so much and loves their community with a passion also loves cigars and whiskey. What's their response? It's shock at first, but I, Really, they're on their knees at the end because I do it very carefully. I'll usually find some object lesson in their own city. For example, I was in a city called Katwe, a copper city, copper mining city in Zambia. And I found this lady who had a very, very scarred face and was a beggar between the two cash machines in town. So everyone knew she was there. And so I went and found out what her name was. I think her name was Norma. Found out what her story was. And so in the sermon, I said to you, how many of you use the cash machine downtown. They will put their hand up. I said, well, how many have seen that lady in the middle that has this veil over her face that's begging? And she's been begging there for 23 years. How many of you have ever talked to her? Nobody. You see, and I said, how is it possible to have a a city of 300 evangelical churches and nobody knows who she is and why she's there? You know, and I said, you know, her name is Norma. She was thrown into a fire by a jealous older sister when she was three. And that scarred her face. And she now lives with that same sister and she begs her to help those kids go to school. You know, and so I almost shame them into realizing they've ignored mm. Big E on the eat on the chart. And then I say, Now you guys are really shocked. I know you are shocked that I smoke cigars, but I said, Let's go to the scriptures. You strain at gnats and swallow camels. What on earth has smoking cigars got to do with our salvation? Absolutely mm. nothing. You know, what does Orphans and widows and their distress have to do with our religion. You know, it's the essence of sort of the evidence of us coming to a relationship with God is that we care for the vulnerable. You know, that should be the big E on a church's eye chart, not a small E. And so I should them through with a little bit of, you know, sort of well-meaning shaming them into realizing that they need to be shocked at the fact that they have had a church for 20 years and never met Norma. Um mm. And found out her story and, and seeing if they can be of ministry to her. Mm. And so that's sort of how I actually <laughs> went through it. I had one guy walk out and he actually came back and apologized. And I would commend their local beer. So that's what I do. I, I should drink their local beer. That's tell awesome. Them, yeah. And so, yeah, it's an interesting job. I've had to learn to do it because there's no way they can find out halfway through. Yeah. So obviously we have to pause rapid fire questions, but what you said really kind of made me think of a follow-up question with all your work that you've done in Africa. What do you think are the, really the cornerstones for unlocking it economically? I think it's because, because uh, I've been there once and yeah. just, I'm in awe over the vast natural resources and potential of that continent. They could be the preeminent world superpower. Oh, there's no question, and I think they will be as life rises. You know, we're visiting the city of Lagos. The city of Lagos will be the largest city in the world 
the end of the century. Wow. Um, and, you know, Africa is very well educated, but they believe something fundamentally. And this is the most poignant moment in the three days that we speak on. I have one lecture that I do on what makes America great. And I'll say this as an immigrant, but also say this as a Christian. America is founded on the principle that all men were created equal, which means we recognize a creator and that we're all are literally equipped to pursue life, liberty and happiness. And that's the bedrock on which this country is formed. And then you throw a couple of other things. We're willing to take risks. Bankruptcy is actually built into our constitution. It's a constitutional right. And so we're not a shame-driven country. We're a risk-driven country. You can actually take a risk. And if you fail, you get another chance. Most of the rest of the world, including Africa, is shame-based. And so I will tell these Africans who believe that they need someone else in order to really be equal, and I'll tell you, I'll get standing ovations. I get tears when I reach this point of my sermon. Mm. And that is that don't believe the lie that because you are African, somehow you are not capable. You are made in God's image. You need to take the risk and mm. live, press into this reality that we are made by God to be creative. You know, it's a very powerful biblical principle that we are wired to produce more than we consume. And Africans don't believe that. They believe the lie of Satan. And an illustration I use, you know, when I was an accountant for a while, because while I was going to school, I'd leaned into my accounting from my first training in South Africa. My Chelsea certificate was in accounting. So I was an accountant. And about three years into this job, and I was earning a reasonable salary, but I, I did an expense report for one of the salesmen. And I mentioned to my boss, I said to him, I said, boy, I really want to be a salesman. They earn a lot more money than I earn. And he said, well, Rob, he said, some people have it and some people don't, and you don't have it. And that trapped me for three years. Mm. I mean, I'm a natural salesman. My mother was a natural salesman. She could sell a dead horse to an Arab. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and I, can, I can too, but I believed my boss, and that lie trapped me. Mm. And I delayed becoming self-employed and an entrepreneur because I believed that I would fail because I couldn't sell, you see. And so I will use that illustration to my African audience saying, if you believe the lie that you need the white guy or you need the Chinese guy or you need the Oriental guy or you need someone else, then you will stay poor because you're not going to take the risk that you would take as a business guy that God is wired with good ideas. You're not going to take a risk as long as you believe that you're going to fail. Mm. And so I just lean into the things that, that I learned coming here and then just learning as to why this country is so phenomenal. And you know, I really boast about this country. I mean, we're 5% of the world's population. And before the rise of Germany and the, before the rise of Japan, we were 25% of the world's GDP. And with all the rise of Japan, China, South Korea, and all the wealth that has been created everywhere else in the world, we're still 5% and we still have 25% of the world's GDP. You know, why is it that we're such a magic country? It's because we believe in these principles that allow us to be more fruitful than countries that don't have that as their founding principle. Yeah, I firmly believe that. Mm. That's wonderful. All right, let's get back to rapid fire questions. Yeah. Favorite cigar? Favorite cigar is probably Particus number two. I enjoy that. That was what I started getting back in the uh, early days of the cigar club I eventually quit because it was so expensive but they just would automatically send you one every so often yeah and so uh, I enjoy particle number two I enjoy Grand Habana number two as well yeah just a medium bodied mm. slow smoke yeah best dollar for dollar cigar you smoke oh uh, boy probably Grand Habana number two where's your go to place to get smokes online with Holtz or Recently, Jane R. Cigars. I just look for the deals. You know, they all email me. Yeah. I tend to, I tend to do impulse buying because there's a deal that comes across my desk. <laughs> Favorite yeah. liquid pairing with your smoke? Any cognac. Ooh. Any cognac. I like you even more. <laughs> Most interesting person you've met through cigars? Wow. That's a good question. Boy. Probably, it's hard to beat Kay here, I mean, but Steve Grison is a close second. But I have met so many amazing people. That's a tough one. Now, I really feel like every, every man that I've met, they're phenomenally wired by the Lord. 
for a purpose. And it's always fun to try and find out if there's any overlap where I can help them in their, in their journey. I've met some wonderful people. Most memorable cigar experience? I think probably meeting Joe Basil. It was just me Ooh. and him. Just me yeah. and him in Kay Hermine's backyard. And he shared about the homeless village in Austin, Texas. And it just turned my own view of how I could be effective here in Seattle upside down and got me seeing a way to become engaged in a crisis I thought I was hopeless in. And that is just, you know, the biggest missing piece of a homeless person's life is a chronic or catastrophic loss of family and community. Mm. And realizing that that's the church I can and the church can help to provide that. Well, for listeners that haven't heard that episode with Joe Basil, be sure to go back in the feed. It was just, I'd say, less than two months ago that we released that one. All right. Marvel or DC? I have no comment on that. I'm just not into that at all. <laughs> Star Wars or Star yeah. Trek? Definitely Star Trek. Ah, favorite food? Thai ginger chicken. Ooh. On rice with great with mushrooms and lots of gravy. Ooh. Lots of liquid. Yeah. Dogs, cats, neither or both? Dogs. Nickname growing up or in college? This is a funny one. Insane Smith, as in insane, but my middle name is Thane, and so people would call me Insane. <laughs> insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Insane What's one unusual fact that few people know about you? I used to be a hooker. That's a rugby position in the middle of the scrum. But uh, get a middle-aged barber class in Atlanta, Georgia, and tell them that used to be a hooker. It's uh, <laughs> It's like, me, it's like me telling a bunch of African pastors I smoke cigars. <laughs> Favorite one to three books not titled The Holy Bible? Well, definitely, and I recommend a lot The Forgotten Spurgeon. If you want to get your theology right side up. I enjoyed Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Ooh. It's, it's readable, and he gives you various perspectives without drumming one down your throat. And then mm-hmm. tells you where he leans. I really enjoy Wayne Grudem yeah. in, his, in his whole perspective. And, you know, I enjoy comedy. This isn't my favorite, but right now I'm just busy reading I Was Born Illegal, which is Trevor Noah's autobiography. Yeah. Hilarious, and it just was a reflection on South Africa where I grew up. <laughs> Are you an early riser, a night owl, or normal? A uh, night owl. Do you like documentaries? I do. Name me two or three of your favorites. Oh, now that's an interesting one. Boy, nothing comes to mind. I'm going to see in a moment. But I do enjoy documentaries. And I also write series that are based on reality. For example, Victoria, we've really enjoyed that British show at the moment, just about the yeah. life of Queen Victoria. So I like history. I like historical documentaries. You know, about those, the Second World War. I keep telling my kids, they think this is bad. They have no idea. We have no idea. This is oh, a yeah. cakewalk. This is a cakewalk. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you could live anywhere, where would that be? I'd live in Seattle in the summer and then Cape Town in the winter. Ooh. <laughs> Which is summer down there. Right. Go from summer <laughs> to summer. <laughs> yeah, and two that's, beautiful cities on the water. That's the way to do it. Yeah, but I love San Diego, too. Who has been the greatest influence in your life? A gentleman called Everett Kleinhans. When I left home, I left home at 16, and Bommie didn't call me up, so I had a gap year, and so I went and worked with Transworld Radio. And it was right at the time that the charismatic movement was taking off, and the church I went to was very anti-charismatic movement. And this man was from our church, but he became a missionary to Transworld Radio, and he was such a tempered man that he really taught me to hold people tight in my hand and hold my theology a little bit less tight you know, and not to use theology to beat people in the head. And you're just a wonderful, loving man. Taught me many of my Wow. Wow. Just a good, good man. Who's the first person you think of when you hear the word successful and why? Yeah, I think of my wife's grandfather. He was a Pentecostal evangelist and just had such a profound effect on so many people. Just 
he walked in the presence of Christ. It was amazing. What do you do for self-care to rest, to recharge? I get out on my boat and light up. (laughs) (laughs) If you were arrested with no explanation, what would your friends and family assume you had done? That's a good one. Probably done something illegal to help someone getting beat up. Mm. Yeah. I like that answer. All right, last three. What does Holy Smokes mean to you, and how has it contributed to your spiritual journey? It just means new friends and old friends that are willing to spend an hour or two with me and just go through life. If you could have a Holy Smoke with any three people throughout history, living or deceased, who would they be? Can't name Jesus. I think it would be uh, Spurgeon, Ian Murray, and Zwingli. All right, last question. If we were to meet one year from today, and I got a bottle of champagne, and we're out on your boat, lighting up cigars, what are we celebrating? Hopefully celebrate the next built ferry for Africa. And uh, the 42-knot ferry, we've raised capital for it. We haven't raised what we need, but I have investors that have invested in it, and I'd love to see that launched and us going 42 knots with a cigar in our hand. (laughs) (laughs) Rob Smith, thanks for being on the Holy Smokes podcast. Holy Smokers, we have a prayer point for Rob. This thing is done. So let's lift him up and let's try and get this done for him. Thanks Thanks for being on. Okay, you're welcome. Take care.